Hi, and welcome to PodCash, the portable professional development podcast from Cash. My name's Dawn, and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni, the fastest growing professional network of current and future care and education practitioners. You can join us for free at cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists, careers advisors, access to job vacancies, and our member benefits scheme. And we're really lucky this week to have a special episode, which is part of a four-part series recorded at Wellfest, um, which was a wellness festival for learning practitioners put together by West Yorkshire Learning Providers and supported by Cash Alumni back in the early summer. WYLP are a regional network established to support and advocate all providers and colleges in the further education and skills sector. In addition, providing a unique provider support service to support providers on their journey to outstanding. Over to you, Alex. Um, so I just want to welcome you to um, theme three of um, Wellfest. And um, Wellfest was really the kind of dream or brainchild of me and Kelly. We, we back end of last year, maybe September last year, there was a lot of research that came out about um, the stress levels of, of practitioners and assessors and tutors in the FE sector. And actually some research came out that said FE sector tutors were the most stressed out of all of the educational um, system. So we wanted to and we wanted to put on some um, kind of CPD or some support that was exclusively for FE sector and work-based learning practitioners. And the aim is not only to kind of provide practitioners and those people that are that are at the forefront of the FE sector in terms of teaching and learning, give them the tools and hints and tips to help and benefit their own lives and their families and their colleagues, but also ultimately to pay it forward to their learners and their apprentices and help kind of embed into the curriculum or the pastoral or personal development aspects if, if we've kind of put an offset hat on. Um, all the different ways of supporting not only your own well-being um, or, and mindfulness and health and nutrition and exercise um, but also for your learners. So um, this is theme three and our speakers today are Damien and Stephen. At the end of this episode, Damien takes us through a guided mindfulness session. If you're driving or operating heavy machinery or you're just in a place where you can't stop and fully be still, that might not be the right time to listen to the end of this episode. So I'll put a timestamp in the comments in case you want to set a sleep timer to turn your podcast app off or in case you want to come back and listen to that section again and again. So um, without further ado, I will hand over to Damien. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Now, of course, I'm very passionate about mindfulness, but it, the truth is it's not for everyone. So I'd like to give you some experiences today so you can really make sense of the words mindfulness and, and what it may offer you. We could have called this session hardwiring resilience in terms of the training that, that happens in the brain from, from mindfulness. Um, and really to sum it up, there's a quote that I often use uh, when I'm teaching people mindfulness, which is, you know, we can't stop the waves, but we can learn to surf. And this is there's just the recognition that, you know, it's often not the external events in our life but the internal, um, I suppose, reaction to those events, which, which causes us the most difficulty. So in some way, we could describe mindfulness as moving from a more unconscious reactivity to a more conscious responsiveness in our life. So let's, let's, just, let's just start with, um, I suppose, I, I don't wanna feel like I'm trying to convince you, but if we think about the evidence for this, there's been a longitudinal study, study out in Harvard 
um, sort of business school out there. And if anyone's interested, I'd, su I'd suggest just looking up he uh, Professor Herbert Benson's work around the relaxation response. And so what he, he's done is undertake a longitudinal study of people that are um, practicing a relaxation response. And what he means by that is they practice an exercise which takes them out of their normal mode of thinking on a daily basis. And he suggests a 20 minute period. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a bit aware that I'm using the term relaxation because that really isn't what mindfulness is about. But what his evidence shows is that people that practice mindfulness, that's one of the relaxation responses. It could be Tai Chi, yoga, another one. Um, they, it actually shows it's an antidote to the fight or flight response that I'm sure you've heard about. Um, this idea around the chemistry that's released into the body when we're experiencing a fight or flight response. So an example of that is cortisol, the stress hormone, which stays in the bloodstream for up to 10 hours. So we have an accumulative effect in the body. Um, so he's actually proven that not only is, it, is this is an antidote to the fight or flight response, but actually people that practice this don't suffer the same long-term effects of stress. And again, if you think about um, Let's, let's take a, a well-known figure, someone like uh, Barack Obama, you know, and you think about the pictures of him before and after office and, and the, the amount he aged, there's a sense there around the, the long-term effects of stress, you know? So that's, that's one benefit. We also know from brain studies, and there's been so much research now around mindfulness, that generally, I mean, the, the, the usual um, time frame is an eight week period, but that's because most of the mindfulness training are eight week courses. What we actually see from recent studies is from three, three hours of mindfulness practice, there starts to, to be significant changes in the brain. And they talk about thickening of brain regions, which is uh, really more information flow. So one of the, the areas of the brain that starts to change is the, the prefrontal cortex, and that's linked to um, our ability to regulate our attention and our concentration. So one of the benefits from mindfulness training is more cognitive bandwidth. And I believe Stephen will talk about multitasking later and the myth of that. So, so there's just some benefits. If I, if I need to convince anyone, there's a lot of evidence pointing to this. So what do we mean by mindfulness? Let's start here. You know, it's a very simple word. Um, and mindfulness really just simply means present moment awareness. So are we fully aware of what we're doing as we do it? So it's such a simple thing, it's such a simple idea. But again, the, the studies, the studies uh, show us that's not how we function daily. So there was a, a large global study back in 2010 by, by some neuroscientists, and they were actually interested in attention. And they found that the average person for 47% of their waking hours, they were actually on autopilot. Okay, so they were more mindless than mindful. And, um, you know, it seems quite an interesting figure when you think about it. But when you start to reflect on your day so far, and if you think about when have you been on autopilot, we start to realize that often we're not fully paying attention to what we're doing. You know, we're often lost in our, our thoughts about other things. Um, so for 47% of our waking hour, we're often on autopilot. And what we know is when we're on autopilot, it's often when our buttons are pushed and we overreact. So we're not consciously aware of how we're responding to a situation and often we're overreacting. That was one of the first things my, my wife commented on when I was first practicing mindfulness about 15, 16 years ago. She started to notice that I was turning up very differently at home after a hard day's work. 
One, one way we can start paying attention more mindfully is to notice when we're mindless, actually. What they actually showed, though, was for 25% of the time, um, the average person is ruminating. So our, our thoughts are often on the past or, or the future and the worries that we're holding. And the neuroscientists in this study, they actually said a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And again, if you think about when you've been on autopilot and where, you're, when you're, where your mind is, you might get some understanding of that. So it's a real feat of humans that we can perform a task and have our mind elsewhere, but often that comes at an emotional cost. And I think this is, this is really important because this is not about relaxation. Um, this is about ensuring that we can be at the best in our work. You know, for me as an executive coach, it's, it's so I can show up and really be on my A game when I'm with my clients. But also I want to be at my best when I'm at home with my wife and kids, you know. I don't want to be carrying things with me. Um, you know, we, we know that 90% of what's playing in the mind is reruns, you know, thoughts about the future or the past that we've had before. So the mind is actually more like a rumor mill. It's more like a radio playing in the background. Um, but often we get lost with the fact that our thoughts are actually facts. They're not just mental events that are happening. And this is the capacity that mindfulness brings to us. At this point, unfortunately, we lost Damien to technical issues, but the second speaker of the day, Stephen Mordew, was already in the session and picked up his bit early to carry on from where Damien left off. I got interested in this, I suppose, because I did used to practice uh, mindfulness a little bit, well, meditation a little bit, and was really bad at it, because um, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, and that got me interested in that, and then, uh, and then I started to get interested in how overworked and stressed social workers could do things to improve their productivity to try and help them keep pace with uh, with uh, the demands of the modern workplace so i started looking at the impact of stress and what we can do about it one of the problems in in, in thinking about this is uh, is we have to realize that the world has, has changed out there kind of beyond anything that our um our bodies and, and our minds in an evolutionary sense are, are, are designed to cope with um, the, the pace of change that we experience is absolutely uh, phenomenal, and uh, th there's a risk. There's a risk that we personalise this too much and, and make it feel as though it's kind of our fault, rather than the problems of living in the kind of modern world that we live in. Um, so I, I started digging around in the literature, and I found this book by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock, and I think this is really worth a, It's really worth reading this quote out. And, and he, he said, writing in 1970, so 50 years ago, he was writing about what he thought the world would be like at the turn of the century. And he said, in the three short decades between now and the 21st century, millions of ordinary psychologically normal people will face an abrupt collision with the future. Citizens of the world's richest and most technologically advanced nations, many of them will find it increasingly painful to keep up with the incessant demand for change that characterizes our time for them the future will have arrived too soon and i think I, when, when i read that quote i thought that that's exactly kind of what we're living through it, it it comes as no surprise to me that that we're living in times where um mental health problems and issues are are at the foremost of, of what we talk about because so many people are experiencing what i would call not maybe acute mental health problems, but that kind of background, kind of mental health issues around anxiety, around the, the, the impact on our well-being. So not things that are going to maybe be extreme and hospitalise you, but things that very much do impact on on how you function on a on a day-to-day -day basis. So this kind of death of this death of permanence, 
um, is a kind of real is, is a real problem for us, I think, in the world that we live in. I'm a big fan of philosophy. I don't claim to understand um, anywhere near at least half of it, but I, I, I like to read it and kind of help me ponder. And Stoic philosophy, so going back like, to Greek times and, and Roman times, which kind of ties into the fact that we haven't really changed much since then, uh, really, in terms of how we function. Um, the Stoic philosophers of, of that era talk about the dichotomy of control. And they say that some things are very much under our control and some things are not. And understanding that is where wisdom lies. Beyond that, I suppose, there we do have influence sometimes over the things we can't control. Um, so an example for me from my uh, past practice world would be end dates of reports and the like. For students, the students that I work with, I talk them about this because they don't control the, the end date um, when, when their assignment's due in. Um, but what you can do is you have some influence in a sense because you can control how you get to that point. And I'm gonna kind of uh, pick that up as, as, I, as I go through. There are some things we can't control and some we can and some things we have influence over and that fits with this model we were very much we were we were talking about mindfulness there with damien before we were before he was rudely interrupted by a, a technical hitch and he was talking very much about internal order and and i think internal order is something that we can attempt to have some control over and um also for me because i'm interested in in productivity um at work and how how engaging in these things that build our resilience can can improve our productivity because there are, there are things that are just ours to deal with. Um, and that those can be things um, in our life and those can be things in our work. Um, in fact, picking up on that, I'm not a huge fan of this, uh, this work-life balance idea. Um, I don't find it particularly, uh, particularly helpful um, because to me, uh, work is life and, and life is work. Um, and I think by, um, trying to insist that these things two things are kept separate and creates a kind of psychological kind of schism if you like between which means we were led to try and kind of get work done and out of the way the thing that we call work to, to get it done and out of the way so that we can get at life um, which is the stuff that happens outside of work but i don't know about you but uh, when i'm when i'm at work and, and I'm, I'm at work now uh, really I, I love doing this kind of thing and talking to people about about these kind of these kind of issues and this doesn't feel like work at all. This feels like life. This is this is a, 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 an interesting, fun thing to be doing. I, I love this. Um, but when I'm when I'm having life if you, in that work-life balance construct, when I'm having life and I'm cleaning the toilet or I'm doing the ironing or any of those kind of things or weeding the garden, which I'm not a fan of, that actually feels like work to me. So I think to try and separate things out into work-life and balance those is not really uh, good for us. I think we should just be looking to have a balanced life. And part of having a balanced life is understanding what is ours to control um, and trying to keep the chaos out because the world out there is a chaotic one. Somehow, if we can control our uh, inner person, if we can control our sphere of responsibility, we can keep the chaos out. Or at the very least, we can negotiate how the chaos gets in. Uh, and, I, and I think that's that's important. Who remembers Bookaroo? I think, uh, I can't claim this is my idea. A colleague of mine uh, gave me this idea and said, you know, life and, and stress is like Buckaroo. We, um, if you don't know this game, you sit the donkey down and, and you, you, you put, the, you put the, the, the things on the back of the donkey and you have to put them on gently and you have to load them up carefully um, so that the donkey can, can handle the weight of everything it needs to handle. And then uh, if, you, if you put something on and you jar the donkey or you put too much on, it kicks and it has that Buckaroo moment. And, 
and we and, and we were saying when we we're having this conversation that really that's just like that's just like life and that's just like what stress does to us we we you know we get up on the morning and we've got all the things to do on the morning before we go to work and all the things to do then it just becomes too much of us so at the end of the day we think oh stuff this and we have a buckaroo moment and uh, and everything goes everywhere and we have to get up the next morning and try and sort it all out um to make a start on it all again um so in terms in terms of that we need to be careful about how we load things up so we only load enough up that we can manage but we keep control of all the other things that we that that we're after controlling um in terms of in terms of stress um we were damien mentioned the the amygdala there and how that uh, mitigates our kind of stress response or manages our stress response with that fight or flight response the problem for me in the modern workplace is that fight or flight response is great if we, if, if we get to use it properly i.e we run away from something or defend ourselves from something but often the thing that we're running away from or defending ourselves from is the thing that's on the computer screen in front of us the report that needs to be written and all those kind of things are the job that the boss has just given us to do so we haven't got that ability to uh, to to uh, to run away from the the thing that's causing that fight or flight response um so that means that we're awash with adrenaline and cortisol um all of the time or or, or can be i guess so I was just explaining to everybody before you all joined us, resilience is a bit of a dirty word in social work practice because it, it's uh, it's as though we're, we build resilience so that our employers uh, can give us more work to do. And I don't really see it like that. I see resilience as being about creating a kind of um, healthy emotional health, mental health and physical health kind of life for ourselves. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that Damien was touching on there before was, was I suppose, was, was the importance of rest in all of that um but rest being a an active um activity uh, sometimes we rest in ways that are negative for us um we rest by uh drinking red wine which is a particular problem i have you know you, you do that you know you rest in that way and actually the stress that that then puts on your body if you drink too much of that red wine is really negative for you in the, in, in the in the long run um we sometimes rest by just vegging out in front of the television, watching anything and, and whatever just happens to be to be pushed our way. Um, so rest is something that I think we need to plan for and engage with and think about how we are going to rest and, and recuperate. Um, one of the interesting and facts that, that that I've come across is when we're doing when we're doing nothing, um, when we're thinking of nothing, our brain is only five to ten percent less active than it is when we're actively engaging with the, the, the external world. Because uh, part of our brain called the default mode network, um, once you stop concentrating on the outside, it starts concentrating on everything that it wants to work on. Um, and mindfulness and, and, and meditation, meditation can, can help us with that. So rest is, is not, a, it's not a, a passive activity. In fact, one of, the, one of my favorite ways to rest is to go for a run. Um, that might not be everybody's cup of tea, but that's the way that I like to, to rest because I, I really find that it, I really find it's a good thing because I find when I'm out running, I can switch off to everything, um, or I can ruminate. I can ruminate. I know uh, Damien was talking about rum, rum, ruminating on things, and, and I, I get that that's a that's not a good thing necessarily. But sometimes I like to just apply myself to one thing and think about just one thing. And when I'm out for a run, that's, that's a that's a good way to uh, that's a good way to do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about emotional resilience and a little bit about practical resilience. I don't want to miss out physical resilience. We we live in um, we, we live in physical worlds, so we have to be 
physically well enough to be part of those worlds. And uh, there is a physical demand on our bodies, even if we don't have particularly active, active jobs, particularly active roles. Um, so let's not forget that, I particularly like Chris Hoy um, on, on, on this subject, which, where he says uh, that, that uh, he never stands and he can sit, and he never sits if he can lie down. And I think that, you know, because he needs to, he needs to conserve his legs and his, his energy in his legs. We don't need to do that. We need to conserve our energies in our minds because I think most of us, I think most of the people I'm talking to here today, uh, we're working in the kind of knowledge economy. We're working, we're working in that kind of area, aren't we? Where we need to maintain our psychological uh, capacity to do the thing that we need to do, um, to be present um, in the moment that we that we need to be in. Um, so we need to rest our brains as much as possible, and uh, you know, do do as little as possible with them as we can when we can and, and that's where i think meditation comes in uh, although that is still an active pursuit so emotional resilience really important practical resilience is really important um there's an idea in 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 the workplace there's an idea in the workplace that um that we uh should try and achieve a thing called flow um and when you are in flow you are mindfully working on things, as Damien was saying, working on things one thing at a time um, to the exception of, of, of all other things. And uh, flow relies on three things, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And purpose relies on uh, internal motivation, not external motivation. So by being motivated from inside yourself. Um, so we need to try and be masters of our emotions, being autonomous with our emotions. So not letting other people's emotions dominate ours. And, uh, and, and approach things purposefully in terms of our emotional well-being. The same applies to our physical well-being and, uh, and, and also to, to the practical stuff that we, that we try and do. Because to me, emotional resilience and physical resilience and getting things done relies on practical resilience, which is the way we organize ourselves, the way we plan, uh, the way we get on top of all of these crucial areas of our lives. Because when I start to talk to people about building their physical resilience and exercising for for 20 minutes to half an hour every day and taking time out to plan um people then struggle with that idea because they can't find time to do anything um anyway the three aspects of flow sophie are uh, are mastery autonomy and purpose some of the literature often changes purpose for relatedness but uh, those are the three things mastery autonomy and purpose or relatedness. Daniel Goldman in his book Emotional Intelligence, Why It Matters uh, More Than IQ. Uh, it's a great book. It's one it's on my definitely on my top ten recommended books list to read if you're interested in how we manage our emotions. He says there are kind of three ways of of being emotionally and they're kind of a continuum. So some of us overlap in some of these areas. He suggests that um, people can be engulfed by their emotions. Um, swamped, helpless, mood taking charge, no control over their emotional life. And I think we can all get to that point sometimes. Uh, and, and I'm sure we're going to hear from Damien that mindfulness and, and meditation can help you uh, with those kind of things. I'm sure we all get to that point sometimes. Uh, but for me, if you become engulfed, it's about knowing what your strategies are to get out of that state of being in terms of, of your emotions. Some people, he says, are accepting of their emotions. They're clear about what they are, but they do very little to change them. 
um, they just decide to accept that that's the mood that they're in and they're just going to kind of go with it so they might kind of I don't know veg out on the sofa if they're in a low mood or they might get it something if they're in a in a, um, in a in a better mood what Daniel Golden says is that we should we should be aiming to be self-aware and I really love this phrase he uses where he says we should have a sophisticated response to our emotions he's not saying that we should never get overwhelmed or down or, or whatever those things are inevitable as part of life I, I guess what he's saying is we should know how to respond to those emotions know where to go to understand that um, and I know exactly where to go in terms of my uh, self-care because if I'm feeling down and low and I want to try and motivate and energize myself like I said before I go for a run um, that's what I would do so knowing how you can respond sophisticatedly to your emotions I kind of know when I'm getting a bit kind of um, stressed by things, so I know to take some time out. Uh, one of the things I've invested invested in recently is one of these Shakti mats. I don't know whether you've seen these. These are the mats with the little spikes. They've got thousands of little spikes on, and they're like a, a bed of nails. And uh, you lie back down on it, and it really hurts to start with, but eventually it kind of starts to subside. The pain, the discomfort, starts to subside. And actually, uh, just in terms of meditation, as I've mentioned, in terms of meditation. Um, I find it really good to, to to get thoughts out of my head because really once you when you first lie down on it I'm not selling this am I really when you first lie down on it, um, it you can't think of anything other than how uncomfortable it is and then and I put some music on and, and and by the time the pain starts to subside because your you know your body gets flush with endorphins to deal with the pain by the time it starts to subside actually your mind's fairly clear and, and I find so I find it's a great way so um, yeah. Sorry, David, can I just interject there? I think yeah. that's why I really enjoy getting tattoos. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. yeah. It I actually get moments of pure clarity and like when people say, does it not hurt? And I'm like, I absolutely enjoy it because it gives me, you know, that it, the initial pain, you get over that and then it gives you kind of moments of clarity and you can think about things that you wouldn't fit in your day normally. I mean, not that I've got hundreds, but the ones <laughs> that I have, I've had... Ten well, moments of clarity in my life. <laughs> well, absolutely. Well, and, and I think uh, I think you're right. I think. Um, well, I've been reading an interesting book by a guy called um, Nassim Taleb at the minute, and he talks about a thing called um, it, it, the book's called Anti Fragile, and it's a really interesting concept, and, and it relies it relies on um, a concept called post traumatic growth. And we're all familiar with the term post-traumatic stress disorder and we understand that, you know, and, and we, we, we can talk about adverse childhood experiences and the impact that has later in life and those kind of things. So we're very, we understand the fact that trauma can, can actually, you know, cause problems later on. But actually for some people who are anti-fragile, um, who have built up their resilience, what what is found sometimes is is they thrive often as a consequence of, of a bad experience because they're sophisticatedly aware of how to deal with it. And I think there's something in that. Um, I don't claim to be an expert on that or on adverse childhood experiences, but there's something in that about if we give people the skills to, to navigate adverse experiences of anything in their lives, if we give people the, the skills, the, the, the knowledge, the information, um, then they've got a fighting chance of actually coming out of an adverse experience um, in a positive way rather than a negative way. I, I don't see that in any way to diminish the impact of uh, PTSD at all. But I think in general life, we can come out of situations that challenge us um, and, it, and improve who we are and how we respond to things uh, if we've got the right sort of skills. And um, 
And I suppose some of that's what we're talking about today. I guess part of part of uh, what I'm really interested in is is productivity in the workplace and how our uh, mental ability, our mental agility, kind of kind of helps us or or, or uh, deters us from getting things done. I suppose uh, I'm a big fan of a guy called David Allen who who uh, has a thing called the Getting Things Done methodology, and um, he has shown through this methodology how you can get in the flow more successfully by being really thorough and disciplined. Um, in the way that you you plan, um, if you think things through, you are more productive uh, and more efficient. And uh, taking his ideas on board, I, I have this view of life now that uh, a good day starts the previous day, and a good week starts for me on Friday afternoon. And what I do on Friday afternoon has an impact on uh, on what I do on Monday morning. And a good month starts a month early, and and then I sometimes plan three months ahead. And and, and the more you plan. Um, one of the things that, that, that I've read from, from, I think it's from David Allen, is planning brings the future into the present so that you can do something about it. So if you know you've got things happening in three months' time and you bring those into your present moment and plan them and map them out, um, using a principle that, 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 that I like, which is the, the how do you eat an elephant principle, which is one bite at a time because you couldn't possibly eat a whole elephant um, all in one go. And, it's, and that works on this fact that if you break tasks down into smaller tasks, suddenly that big task doesn't feel as onerous as lots of smaller tasks would feel. And it relies on a thing called the, the power of small wins, which means every time you tick something off your list of things to do, um, you get a little dopamine rush um, because of the success of that moment. And uh, dopamine's our feel-good um, feel hormone. So you get a little dopamine rush every time you take each step if you only are attempting to do one big thing, you only get the dopamine rush when you finish the big thing. But if you break it down into 10, 15 steps, then you get a little dopamine hit every time. And that motivates you onto the next step and stops you procrastinating because procrastination is really the thing that gets in the road of what we do, uh, of what we do a lot. Um, just going back to the, 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 the planning thing, really, we're at our least productive, apparently research has shown we're at our least productive on Monday mornings and Friday afternoons probably doesn't come as a great surprise really um at our most productive on tuesday and the reason we're most productive on tuesdays is because we spend all day monday planning we spend all day monday reacquainting ourselves with the things that we have to do in this week and end up losing monday or some of monday as a consequence now if we're not very productive on a friday afternoon anyway why not use that that time when we don't want to start anything new, we don't want to get into a big project. It's Friday afternoon, it's about to be my time because we're locked into work-life balance. And if we're locked into that, then use that to our advantage by spending an hour or an hour and a half on Friday afternoon planning your following week. And what that means is when you hit the desk on Monday morning, you already know what you're going to do and you can start immediately rather than on Monday morning, have you had a bookaroo moment on Friday afternoon because you want to get your glass of red wine? You've had a bookaroo moment Friday afternoon you then go home feeling all stressed. You can't forget work. You keep remembering things. Monday morning, you come in, you have to deal with all the things that your donkey, metaphoric donkey has spread everywhere on your desk. And you don't get started until Monday lunchtime. Well, how about getting started on Monday morning by loading everything up carefully on Friday afternoon? Um, and I've been working with a couple of people who are social workers who, who, who asked to work with me because they are particularly badly organized. And I've got them to do this. And what they've said is that their stress on a weekend has been reduced. They've enjoyed their weekends more 
and they've managed to get at work quicker on a Monday morning. So that was it. Proof we needed. Um, that's the kind of that's the proof, I guess, that uh, that that it, that it really works. Before I finish, there's a couple of other key things that I, that I, that I want to mention uh, because Damien did mention this one, and it's a real bugbear of mine, and that is that multitasking doesn't work. Okay, you are not capable. Much as I love you all, you are not capable of doing two things at once. Um, and I try the, I'm going to try this now. I do it when I'm in a room of people and it works really well. I'm not sure how it will work. You're going to have to do it individually because um, we can't all hear each other. But uh, just just count for me one to ten. Four, five, six, seven. Okay, you can stop that now. Okay, now, now uh, say the alphabet uh, and I'll stop you once you've got halfway through it. Maybe. A, B, C, D, etc. Okay, and, and I think you yeah, I'll are... stop. stop that. That's good. Thanks for that, um, Alex, because I can hear that you're doing that. Right. Okay. So now what I want you to do is I want you to, um, I want those two things to interact together. So I want you to go 1A, 2B, 3C, 4D, etc. Have a go at that. 3C, 4D, 5E, 6F, 7G, 8H, 9I, 10J, 7K, Twelve. I've lost track. Okay, stop. Stop. <laughs> so, so those, that, those are two things that you just intuitively know how to do. You know how to count and you know how to say the alphabet. But once you try and do both of those things at the same time, two things happen. You slow down, and you start to make mistakes. Yeah. And there's a great piece of research by Microsoft uh, into this where they interrupted their programmers with an email. The programmers went off and read their email and then they came back to their work and what they found was it took them between 15 and 20 minutes to get back up to speed on the job the task they were currently engaged in so they lost time and uh, after they'd been interrupted by the email um, they made more errors in their coding so the key here is single tasking the key thing is doing one thing at a time um, mindfully being focused on that one thing um, in, in, in the moment um, until you finish that one thing and moving on to the next thing. The problem with that is it needs you to be very organized. It needs you to be organized so that you can only think about the thing you are currently doing at the expense of everything else. Um, the word priority is a singular word. It comes from the Latin a priori. It's a singular word. You can only ever have one priority. There can only ever be one thing that right now you currently need to work on. If you have a system that controls everything you need to do that's in your sphere of responsibility, then you should know that when you're doing that one thing, that's the one thing that you need to be doing right now if you control it. David Allen has this great phrase, if you don't control it, it will control you. So you have to control everything that is in your sphere of responsibility in your work. Beyond that, if you can then take all of those tasks that you do and chunk them together into similar tasks, you will work even faster. The best example of this is, if you're like me, when you start to read a book, you read quite slowly, but the longer you read the book for you, the faster your, your reading speed picks up. So if you can chunk all your reading tasks together, all your writing tasks together, all your conversational tasks together, you will work faster um, on those tasks. So yeah, control it, or, or it will control you. And I'm going to step aside now so that Damien can pick up where he left off uh, are you okay are you good damien yeah let's hope so sorry i mean it's, it's good that i practice mindfulness i think but uh <laughs> yeah. sorry this happened in 12 weeks of doing online learning so i'm really sorry i dropped out um, <laughs> let me just pick up where i think i was so in a way mindfulness practice is a practice of forgetting and remembering to be in the present moment the more 
we're, we're developing the capacity to notice where the mind is and coming back to the present moment, the more we're developing this, this muscle of stepping out of this, this rumination centers of the brain, you know, strengthening the communication with the prefrontal cortex if we want to think about it. So it's like going to the gym. If we, we didn't have any weights there, there wasn't resistance, you know, we wouldn't develop the muscle. And the same thing with meditation practice. Your mind is, is always going to be contracting into thinking. Over time with practice, you'll catch yourself a lot quicker. And, and the capacity in terms of well-being that we're developing here is called metacognition. It's, it's, you could describe it as the observing mind. We start to notice the thoughts we're having. We start to notice the emotions that we're experiencing rather than just unconsciously reacting to them like we're on autopilot. And why, and why is that important? Well, it just links to what Stephen's just had, said. If we notice them, we have them rather than them having us. And that's, that's the key thing. So what I'd like to do is just, I'm just going to give us a short experience of a mindfulness exercise because, you know, great, great theory and all of that. I meet thousands of people who have headspace on their phone, but they've never used it. You know, with mindfulness, we're learning to notice how we're relating to our experience with this present moment awareness. So we've got more space to choose how we respond. OK, but we need to train our minds to, to be able to do that. So I'm going to take us through a very short exercise called a three step breathing space. This is a great technique to use if you're ever going in perhaps to an important lesson that you're going to be running. Perhaps you've got a conversation to have with with one of the learners. Um, and you want to be in a good good space and this is this is a great technique it's really that designed to get us out of autopilot okay so i'm going to take us through this so um you could be standing up you could be sitting down but just going to invite you if you're sitting down to have both feet flat on the floor and just sit upright in the chair and just have your hands sort of resting in the lap and just see your hands on a distraction now we can't see you so you know you don't have to worry about people seeing you but if it's comfortable, just, just allowing the eyes to close and that just brings the attention inside. So just allowing the eyes to close. If you're comfortable doing so, just putting the tongue on the roof of the mouth and that encourages the air to circulate through the nose. And there's lots of evidence to show the benefits of nasal breathing. So step one of the breathing space is just to notice how we are. So let's start by noticing the quality of the mind right now. Is the mind distracted? Is it calm? Is it tired? Is it awake? We're not changing anything. We're just noticing the mind. And there may be thoughts there. And again, we're just noticing them. And then linked to the mind, just notice what's on the emotional landscape. How are we feeling right now? And just give it a word. Am I mad, glad, sad, bad, excited, frustrated? We're just naming it. We're not getting lost in a story of why we're feeling that way. And then linked to the minds and the emotions, just notice how the body feels. As we notice the body, we might notice any tightness anywhere. We might notice Perhaps a sense of how alert or tired the body feels. And again, we're not changing anything. And now step two, we're just going to gather the awareness by paying attention to the breathing in the body. So just feeling into the body and noticing where we experience the physical sensations of breathing most vividly. We're just going to move our attention there. 
So that might be at the end of the nose. We might be experiencing the air moving in and out the nostrils. Perhaps it's the chest rising and falling with the breath. Or maybe it's down in the abdomen. We're noticing the abdomen expanding and releasing with the breath. So we're not changing the breath. We're not controlling the breath. We're simply using the physical experience of breathing as an anchor for our present moment awareness. So fully experiencing the full duration of the in-breath as the air is moving in the body at this point. And fully experiencing the out-breath as the air is leaving the body at this point. So breathing and fully knowing that we're breathing as best as we can. And remembering we're not trying to clear the mind of thoughts. So thinking, sounds, sensations, emotions can come and go. And we're staying with the breath as best as we can. As soon as we notice that the mind has contracted into thinking, just notice where the mind has gone and we give it a soft mental note that's thinking or planning or worrying. And then we just let go, we relax the body. The body often tenses when we're thinking. And we just start again with the next in-breath. There's no need for any commentary, we just start again. Paying attention to this breath, breathe in the body as a way of staying in the present moment rather than a virtual reality of thinking. So seeing if we can experience the beginnings of the in-breath and the ending of the out-breath. And each time the mind moves away and starts to time travel, just noticing that, giving it a mental note, and then coming back to the breath and starting the practice again. And now step three, we're just gonna expand the awareness around the breathing, and we're gonna become aware of the whole of the body as it sits here. So from the top of the head down to the feet on the floor, Really noticing that felt sense of sitting in the chair. So perhaps contact with the floor, contact with the seats. Noticing the edges of the body, the skin. Even feeling into the space around the body. And just for a few moments, see if we can notice the whole body moving with the breath. As though the breath is breathing the whole of the body and the body is being breathed by the breath. And in a short while, we're gonna hear the bell sounds. And as the bell sounds, it's an invitation to open the eyes when it feels right for us to do so. And just seeing if we can bring some of this grounded attention into the next part of the session.
sense. There's nothing weird about the bell. It just helps if someone's fallen asleep. Uh, so you know, usually people start to realise how tired they are when they when they pause, and that's natural. You know, usually after about four weeks of practice, people start to notice they're not falling asleep as much. You know, again, but mindfulness is about how we're relating to our experience. If we fall asleep, we just fall asleep. So I suppose the final thing I want to say is, you know, the the order research shows we get benefits from these simple exercises if we have a regular practice. So even if we're doing short practices like the three-step breathing space, you know, once or twice a day, over and over a period of time, we start to notice the physiological physiological changes in the system actually, and how we're relating to to events. You know, the waves coming in. Um, there's a final quote I just want to finish with, which comes from Viktor Frankl, which he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. Um, and in that space is our power to choose our response. And that's what mindfulness gives us. It's a more conscious way of, of responding. Thanks to Stephen and to Damien for today's episode of Podcast, brought to you by West Yorkshire Learning Providers and the Wellfest Festival. This was one of four special episodes that have been released over the past two weeks. So if you enjoyed today's episode, you can find the other three in the podcast library. Thanks to Alex and West Yorkshire Linen Providers for hosting this episode. And thanks to you at home. We hope you enjoyed this episode of podcast. Don't forget, for more great content tailored to everyone in the care and education sectors, you can join our membership network, cashalumni.org.uk. It's free to join and you'll get access to articles from subject specialists, careers advice, job vacancies and our member benefits scheme. WYLP offer a range of membership options to suit all, so if you'd like further information on how they can support you, you can head over to their website www.wylp.org.uk for more information. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of Podcash, please get in touch with us through the contact details on the Cash Alumni website. Until next time, take care.